He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. That, of course, is the great passage concerning our Lord Jesus from Colossians 1, and it's a passage that again reminds us of what we talked about last week, and that is that we live in a world that is more than material, that is more than space and time, that we live in a world with an invisible world at work, and more than that, an invisible war at work. And hopefully last week I was able to Not that I thought I needed to, but I was able to convince you of that fact, to prove that the Scriptures teach that reality, and to encourage and prod you that this is a reality, this is an awareness that we need to have, that we need to not just be blind to. And that's not to say that every cause or every sin or every evil has a demon behind it, but it's also not to, it is to say that we can't just put our heads in the sand and acknowledge that there's a lot that's going on that we're not aware of. I didn't think I said this last week, but this has been a, a good challenge for me uh, as your pastor. Uh, one of the reasons it's been a good challenge for me is because I have never studied this subject in this kind of depth. And you're saying, well, wait a second, didn't you go to seminary for four years full-time? Yes, I did. I went to a good, solid, reformed seminary that I believe taught me to open the Scriptures and to faithfully uh, understand them and be able to communicate them and gave me the tools to do that. But I never, ever remember talking about spiritual warfare at seminary. Now, maybe that says something about the particular seminary that I was a part of. I think it does, and we can talk about that offline if you want. Don't want to go on record about that for sure. Uh, But uh, it says something, too, about our our Reformed world and our Reformed sensibilities. And um, as I said last week, our reluctance uh, to open up this can of worms that is in many ways mysterious and hard to get our heads around. This morning, I want to just go through um, and talk through um, a couple things. You see, I I gave you a handout there that uh, contains basically two different sections, and um, I know many of you took books. There was no books when I left yesterday, uh, or left last week, so that's good. Um, And I'm assuming that some of you read uh, chapter 3, which is the the uh, chapter that we are going to discuss today, the content of that we're going to discuss. If you didn't read it or if you didn't get a book, no worries. I I told you that that book is going to help guide us. It's going to help stir your thoughts on the subject, but I'm not planning on 
coming up here each week and just rehashing what you read or just working, uh, working through the chapter that you've already uh, read. One of the things that I wanted to talk about just before we get into kind of the more, more specific angle of, of the chapter that you read concerning our enemy is kind of further on this subject of the invisible world, I thought it, was good, it would be good for us in a class on spiritual warfare to not simply, and this is, uh, well, this is larger than just this topic, but not simply talk about the enemy and talk about the schemes of the devil uh, and talk about the battle, the combat that we're going to be involved in, which we're going to talk plenty of that, but also talk about uh, the beauty of the invisible realm. And uh, the invisible realm is not necessarily something that is simply filled with evil and darkness, but it's something that's filled with light. The Trinity dwells there. God the Father dwells there. And around Him is the host of heaven, which is why the Scriptures often call Him the Lord of hosts. And so, I wanted to talk a little bit this morning about uh, the idea of angels. And I'm kind of, uh, you know, I, I assume that a lot of you are, you've been in, the, oh, I know that a lot of you have been in the church for, for some time, for many years. Some of you have thought through these subjects. Some of you have uh, studied these subjects. But I know for a fact that some of you have not. Some of you are fairly new to the church and have not really dived into the Scriptures in regards to these things. And so, um, forgive me for being redundant or for uh, going over what you know to be the case clearly from your reading, from your training, from your growth in grace. But real quickly, I want to talk a moment about angels, about angels. The Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about angels. Um, Angels are often picked up in our world and uh, carried off into these whimsical fancies uh, by the New Age movement or just by those who are quote-unquote spiritual in our world. And we need to be really careful, and that's why I think there's value in just for a moment camping out on the subject of angels, because the Bible does talk about angels, but it talks about angels in a very limited way. And there's a lot of speculation that has gone on uh, on top of the Scriptures that we want to be wary of that we want to be wary of. We know from the Scriptures that angels are created spiritual beings. We know that they were created uh, at some point uh, before we were created, but we don't know when that was precisely. The Scriptures don't tell us about the creation account of angels. We know that angels are more powerful than us, and yet angels have finite uh, capabilities. We know from Hebrews 12:22 that there are an innumerable amount of them. There's seven billion people right now in the world, approximately human souls. Who knows how many human souls have existed prior to that? But the amount of angels, I'm assuming, far exceeds the amount of human souls on this planet and maybe those who have gone before. They're called other names in Scripture, holy ones. They're called spirits. They're called sons of God. They're called watchers. And we could go through all of that. We could spend a whole class on angels. I don't want to do that. 
But there are uh, at least four main types of, of angels. There's the cherubim, which uh, we hear about the cherubim first in Genesis chapter 3. These are the types of angels that the Lord set to guard the garden. When Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden for their rebellion, God put cherubs, cherubim, the plural, to guard the garden so they couldn't return. Psalm 18.10 says that God in in some way rides upon or is enthroned on the cherubim. And of course, the cherubim are those angels that are represented by God's direction on the Ark of the Covenant, guarding that sacred place, guarding that sacred uh, symbol of, of God's presence and God's holiness. So we have the cherubim, we have the seraphim, right? We sing these and we're going to talk about them. In God's providence, we're going to sing holy, 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 and we're going to sing about these specific types of angelic beings. We have the seraphim who are only mentioned in Isaiah 6. They're mentioned as worshipers, so we might assume if the cherubim at least are presented to us as guardians of holiness, we might assume that the seraphim are representative of worshiping holiness or adoring God. And then there's these beautiful pictures. We don't want to take the time to read them, but uh, you can write down these references. Revelation 4, 6, and 8, and then Ezekiel 1, 5 through 14. The Ezekiel 1 passage is really beautiful. But there, the living creatures that are surrounding God's throne are described. And they have these animal-like characteristics, but they also don't look like anything that we see in the African Sahara or anywhere else. And so these are mighty representations of God's glory, another type of angelic being. And then Colossians 1, the passage I just read, thrones, rulers, authorities, um, are some classification that we don't know. And beyond that, I mean, there's maybe a few more uh, trails I could chase, a few more things I could chase in terms of angelic evidence and angelic teaching in the Scripture. But beyond that, we don't know a lot more about angels and about the specifics of angels, particularly in terms of types. We assume from uh, places like Ephesians that there are ranks of angels, and conversely, there will be ranks of, of uh, evil uh, angels, of demons as well. Uh, Michael and Gabriel are the two named angels that we know of in Scripture. We don't have other named angels in God's Word. Michael is called the archangel. He's called the chief prince. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says he is going to be the angel that will announce Jesus' return. And then Gabriel, of course, is familiar from Luke 1, and we also had Gabriel appear in Daniel chapter 8. And so we know that there's some rank and file to angelic hosts as well. And then what is the purpose of angels? What is the purpose of angels? Well, I think one uh, passage sums up the purpose of angelic beings. Psalm 91, 11 and 12, let me read it to you. For he will command his angels concerning you, to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot 
against a stone. So in addition to being the host of heaven that do the bidding of God, that worship God, that protect His holiness, that guard His holiness, they are God's specific servants to care for you, to care for me. And that's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. I had one of my daughters ask me, I don't remember what prompted this, but she asked me if if there were guardian angels, if everyone has a guardian angel, that is something the Scriptures is not clear on, that there are angels assigned to specific souls. But what the Scripture is clear on is that angels are tasked in part to care for you and to guard you. And so we, even last night, we gathered in, in our room, we prayed with our children, and we prayed that the host, I prayed that the host of heaven would guard our house, would guard our sleep. You've heard about my Saturday night struggles at times. Barry asked me this morning how I slept. I slept great last night. So that's a perfectly appropriate thing is to pray to the Lord that He would surround us with His angelic hosts. Now what about appearances of angels? Well, we know in the New Testament, we know in the early church that angels appeared. Acts 8 tells us that an angel showed up to talk to Philip. Acts 12, an angel showed up to rescue Peter from prison. As we get later in the New Testament, we don't hear a lot of angelic appearances or representations, but I think it's perfectly uh, safe to assume that from time to time, even unaware, as Hebrews says, right, entertaining strangers, you might be entertaining angels unawares. I think it's perfectly appropriate that, and perfectly possible that many of us, and, and maybe you have a, maybe you have a firmer commitment and a firmer testimony to this, but I think it's very possible that some of us have seen an angel. Some of us have witnessed some sort of angelic host. Maybe not, but it's possible. And so, keeping that teaching of the invisible realm where it ought to be grounded in Scripture and yet acknowledging the mystery of its intersection into our world, the fact that God designed that this would be the case. So, that's all I really want to say about angels. Any comments about angels? Anything? Anybody want to share anything about angels? Yes, Anne. I'm assuming messenger. Jeff, do you know? In Hebrew, is it the same way? Is it the same? I mean, it's a different word, but same meaning, angel, mess, I mean, messenger? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, messenger. Theo. Yeah. Yes. Um, also, whenever the angels showed up in the Bible, it seemed like people were afraid of them pretty quickly. Yeah. So usually the first thing out of the angel's mouth was, 
Yeah, yeah. Right, right, good. And then also, um, I had a experience just once with a young man where I was in a place I shouldn't have been. Um, a, a dance, drinking, drink, you know, that was just not a good place to be. And I had a man come up to me through the crowd, with my friend, and he looked me in the eyes and he said, you don't belong here. What are you doing here? And, you know, he was... Complete stranger. Interesting. Interesting. Good. Anybody else? Yeah, I don't want to make too. I mean, I I don't want to make too. I, I appreciate Theo bringing up the issue of. Uh, of the fact that I think that's a significant one, that the angels in Scripture are all represented as, as males, as masculine, in much the same way that Jesus, I mean, that, that, uh, that God is always represented to us in masculine pronouns. And, uh, of course, we don't want to think about God in terms of gender as we think of male and female in terms of gender. And I think in the same way, the host of heaven, we don't want to think about them in terms of gender as we think about male and female. So there's some mystery there, but certainly the scripture presents, presents one picture. Okay, well, let's jump into kind of the heart of what we wanted to talk about, what I wanted to talk about today. And I uh, want to study some film. It's the NBA playoffs. Anybody watching the NBA playoffs? I don't have anybody. No, no NBA fans in here. Good night. Um, NBA fans, uh, we do not have, but uh, we want to study some film. Um, if you're studying film, you want to know your opponent. Uh, in NBA terms, you want to know if 85% of the time the point guard is going to dribble to his right, then you can kind of emphasize your defense uh, on that side in order to create him or to force him to go to his weak hand where there's more possibility for a steal, there's more possibility for a turnover all that kind of thing. You could, you could relay that to any sport, right? And so when we talk about knowing our enemy, what we're talking about is understanding, having a basic working knowledge of who we are dealing with and how we ought to deal with him. And of course, that's kind of the heart of this class and where we're headed uh, in terms of the strategies of resisting and um, battling in spiritual warfare. Again, the Bible's description of our enemy is limited. And so we don't want to um, over-speculate. We can only say a few foundational certain things. And beyond that, we want to be careful. Also, in studying our enemy, we want to not attribute too much power to him. So kind of going back to what I said last week, this is not an exercise in trepidation or an exercise in fear. We'll talk more about that next week. I'm going to really camp out on that and plant my flag in that next week. This is an exercise in confidence. We can know our enemy not because we are ready to go toe-to-toe with him, but because in the Lord, right, in the Lord, we are strong. So our enemy, Satan. 
Satan, like the angelic host, is a limited, created angelic being. He is not a force. He is not an idea that sums up the entirety of evil. But Satan is a being. Like Gabriel is an angelic host, like Michael is an angelic host, Satan is one angelic host. Now, Satan, that word means adversary, and it's the most common word used to describe the primary angelic evil host that we face. It's used 52 times. Secondarily, the devil, which means slanderer, is used 35 times in the Scripture. And of course, Satan is called other names. He's called, uh, as your reading said, Beelzebul, uh, ruler of this world, the evil one, and so forth. So I think that's important to kind of frame our thinking about Satan is that we're not thinking of this kind of ethereal ideology or this summation of the evil realm. When we talk about Satan, our enemy, we're, we're, we're talking about one created being. When we first hear about him, his origin, and we're going to go move into origin, we first hear about Satan in the garden. Something happened, though, before that garden scene, Right? We don't want to hear about the angelic hosts, and they're already there. They're already created by the time we get to the garden scene. In the same way, not just have the angelic hosts been created, but something has happened to create an angelic being who now inhabits and takes the form of a serpent in order to speak to God's prized creation. What happened? Well, <clears throat> there's a couple passages. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, I want you to turn with me um, <clears throat> to the book of, uh, let's see, we could go to a couple different places. Let's go to Ezekiel, Ezekiel 28, Ezekiel 28. So there's two passages. I'm just going to read one of the two. You can write down the second one. The second one is Isaiah 14, 12 through 20. But the first one is Ezekiel 28, 12 through 19. And these are passages, obviously they come from the prophetic voice of two of God's servants in the Old Testament, Ezekiel and Isaiah. And they, they describe specific earthly kings and the actions of specific earthly kings. But the thing about both of these passages is they are so, well, let me just read it and you'll understand. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 19. Thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were an Eden, in the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, em emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. 
In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you, and it continues. Pretty pretty vivid description to be just ascribed to the king of Tyre. And so, although I can't say with certainty, and commentators don't say with certainty, this passage and its accompanying passage in Isaiah 14 that you can read, we believe that at the very least, uh, the actions of these earthly kings are echoes of the rebellion of this guardian cherub clothed in beauty, set before the Lord, who in his pride of that beauty that God had given him, rebelled against the Lord himself. And so, these passages, and we could read the Isaiah one, one of the the things that's striking about the Isaiah passage is, uh, is the statement, I will. And if you read that, he'll read it over again, I will, I will, I will. And it just reveals the, the core of the issue in regards to this angelic being, and that is pride. That's pride. And so, we don't know exactly where Satan came from, but we believe with some sense of certainty, but not with absolute certainty, because these two passages don't directly attribute that to the angelic being that is Satan. But we believe that these passages give us a hint of what happened before our creation. And that's the origin of Satan. So what is his purpose now? Moving to the next section, what is his purpose? Well, the issue for Satan is is glory, I think. The issue is glory. It was pride that caused him to rebel against the Father. It It is the stealing of glory, the marring of glory, the destroying of glory through the destruction, through the stealing, through the marring of you, the glory of the Father, John 10.10, that's what keeps Satan going. Now, Satan, the Scripture says that when Satan fell in his pride, in his rebellion, he took a third of the host of heaven with him, of that innumerable host, and so we know uh, there is, just like there is a definite amount of angelic beings in the invisible realm, there is a definite amount of, an, of, of evil beings, of demonic beings that are in the same way that God's host are His followers to do His bidding, so the demonic realm is Satan's host to do His bidding. And many have likened this, and we'll talk more about this next week again, to... Um, Many have likened the, the, the battle, the spiritual battle, and what's going on to, the, to um, and maybe your book says it too, I can't remember, I read so many books now about this, but to the, post-war, the, the post-war pockets of, of fighting that you have in any international skirmish, right? The powers that be, the main generals, the presidents, the prime ministers, whatever, they eventually decide someone surrenders, someone gives up, someone cries uncle, the war's over, but before that 
news really permeates to the lower ranks and permeates to every jungle and every battlefield, you still have battles going on. And maybe it's the pride of the soldiers that they just want to wreak as much havoc as they can even though they know. Or maybe they think they, they can turn the tide of what is already decided. Maybe they truly think that the tide can be turned by their actions, by their rebellion. And so the fight wages on. Despite the victory, despite the certainty of the end, the fight wages on. Lastly, I want to talk about tactics. One of the big questions for me as I studied this, as I thought about this, one of the big mysteries is it's clear that because these are beings, individual beings, both Satan and his demonic force, they are not omnipresent, meaning they can't be in every place at all times. They're not, they don't, they don't have the characteristics of God himself, in other words those incommunicable attributes of the Father, of the Trinity. They don't have those. So they are limited in their um, ability to be places. They are limited in their ability to do things, but we are given indication, obviously, that they are more powerful than we are in some sense, or particularly in this sense of the spiritual realm. The big question mark is, does the spiritual realm, and this is the best way I can say it, does the spiritual realm operate according to the same laws, according to the same space-time continuum as the physical material world that we are a part of works in. And that's what we just don't know. And what I mean by that is Satan is a limited being. He is one being. I doubt that because of the amount of souls in this world, because of the amount of activity in other places, that any one of us has come across that particular being known as Satan. But how does Satan, if he wants to deal with something here in the Pacific Northwest, how does he get to Oman, Jordan? How does he get to to Shanghai? He doesn't get on a plane and he you know, how does he get there? And I, I'm, so I was thinking about, it was at the Doctor, Doctor Strange movie where he, you know, draws this, draws this wormhole and kind of steps in the wormhole and then goes to another place. I mean, that's just a Hollywood representation of a, of a, of a violence done to a space-time continuum. And that's something that I just, we just don't know. Like, there is a lot of mystery in terms of the operation of the spiritual realm. And, and maybe, never, maybe some of you have thought about this more than I have. Maybe some of you have never thought about it, and you're scratching your head, and you're saying, well, that never, never even dawned on me. But in my study, it was kind of one of those things that affected, it affected other things in regards to how Satan directs demonic force to tempt us and to deal with us and to strategize against us. Because that's one of the things that's clear, is that this is not some haphazard fight that we are involved in. 
but the scripture very intentionally says the schemes of the devil, the scheming of the devil. Picture this big war room with this map just panned out, and, and there's specific pieces being moved here, and specific, yeah, there's some terrorism going on. There is some, just some direct assault for the sake of direct assault, but I think there's also some very intentional, strategic, based upon years and years of understanding the human heart, based upon years and years of, of understanding the, the, the tide of culture, there's some intentionality going on in terms of the enemy's tactics. So, how that, how that works, how he takes a broken world, he being Satan, our enemy, how he takes a broken world, a weak flesh, and brings that all together to orchestrate circumstances around us, to mess with our minds, is a mystery. Anybody want to speak to this? Anybody have some thoughts about this? Doug. Yeah. Okay, well, good. Thanks for sharing. One of the things that um, one of the things that came up on this in this subject is um, the idea of. So we have a couple different passages. Some of them are more familiar than others. Of course, you have that passage in Job when you know Satan shows up and speaks to God directly and asks if he can terrorize Job and gives permission to terrorize him and. Um, 
there's, a, there's that passage in Luke 22 where it speaks of Satan entering the heart of Judas um, in order to accomplish God's purposes of betrayal of the Messiah. Um, and then there's a, there's a passage in 1 Chronicles 21 that speaks of uh, Satan invoking, I think, I think the word is, I don't know the Hebrew word that's used there, but I think the English translation says evoking David uh, to create a census, um, which was not a good idea, which was a, a sinful thing to do. Um, Interestingly enough, the parallel passage to that First Chronicles 21 passage is 2 Samuel 24, and in 2 Samuel 24, it actually says that the Lord told David to do the census, or that the Lord had David do the census. So it's one of those, one of those uh, yeah, Satan did it. He was the secondary means, but it was God's sovereignty that was it was guiding that purpose. So that's, a, that's an interesting passage to study. But one of the things that it was making me think about and really wrestle with, and then we talked about this a little bit in our home uh, when I came home uh, one day and I was talking to Anna about it, was the idea of um, this mystery of how the evil one works and strategizes for our ill to mar God's glory. Certainly, there are circumstances in our lives, under, under the umbrella of God's sovereignty, there are circumstances in our lives that may feel like we are being terrorized, right? Things are just, everything's going wrong, circumstances-wise. Traffic's a nightmare. Maybe you had a bumper, you know, a, a, a fender bender with someone, and you're on your way, and that evoked this anger in you, and you, you know, you cussed in your car, and you flip someone off. I don't know what happened, right? So you're just, you know, these things to draw the sin out of you and to just create this, this bubbling effect. But then the, the question is, so what about in here? What about in here? And, and this, this has to do with a larger subject of, um, well, it relates. It, it's not directly... Um, We'll talk about this another time, but one of the big questions everyone wants to know is, can a, can a Christian be uh, demon-possessed, right? Can a Christian be inhabited by a demon, controlled by a demon like those demonic uh, characters that we see in the New Testament? And I would say, and we don't need to go here today, but I would say no. And the reason is because when a Christian, if a Christian is a Christian, who, who is he possessed with, to use that word, right? He's, he's inhabited by the Holy Spirit. Greater is him who is in you than he who is in the world. And so if you're inhabited by the Holy Spirit, you cannot be inhabited by a demonic presence. But short of inhabiting your, 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 pre, your, you know, your being, your will, can, how, how can a demon... Can, can a demon get in your head? Can a demon deal with your can a deal deal with your dreams? Can a demon plant thoughts in your head? Can again may or may not be Satan specifically, but it is that that realm. Mike, you want to?
Yeah. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, to your first question about, about the demons that we see being cast out into the herd of pigs, um, is that specifically talking about, are you wanting to know about kind of the geographical boundaries or the territorial, that notion of territorial spirits? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. Um, why don't I do a little study on that this week? And we'll talk specifically about that. I have some preliminary thoughts that I could give off the top of my head, but being the time that it is, I'm not sure I want to open that can of worms. Uh, it's a great question, though, and um, from from a couple different angles of of what we what we're talking about and the mystery of it all. So, let me hold me accountable. Next week, we'll talk about that specific question in regards to. And your second question was Saul. Um, yeah, we can talk about Saul as well. I, I hadn't planned to talk about him today, but we can certainly put him on the list as well to talk about that mystery of, of, uh, of how he was, yeah, how he was being uh, tormented and how that intersected with his faith. Um, absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. On NPR. Okay. Interesting. NPR. Okay, Jeff, real quick. Right. Right. Yeah, good. I want to... Um, We'll come back to that, and I realize I feel kind of bad because I feel like I've opened a can of worms now, and now they're all just all squiggling out, and we don't have time to bring them back in. L let me just uh, end by saying this about my original question of, in terms of how, 
I think I already stated this, maybe I just stated it in my mind, that we want to be careful of just firmly saying, this is how things work. Unless we have clear scriptural proof and understanding that this is how things work, okay? And so, um, I am going to be very careful saying, this is how things work. And, and the short of it is, I think I came home one day, and Anna can testify to this, I came home and I was kind of like, okay, this is how things work. Uh, the demonic realm can't get in my head. They can't in any way plant thoughts in my head. They're they just deal with what's outside, what's, what's in my circumstances, what's in my life. But then upon further pressing in by my wife and further reflection, I'm backing away from that. And I'm saying, I don't know how it works. But I think there is an element of mysterious... Um, how, how do I want to say this? Mysterious messing with the mind in the spiritual realm that somehow the Lord allows even His servants to experience. Short of being demon-possessed and fully inhabited by, the, 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 uh, by a demonic presence, that's not the case. But there is a mystery, and, and we... we uh, we don't have time to go here, but next week we'll pick up with, with, uh, with the pigs. We'll pick up with uh, the strategy of the mind, the battle of the mind, because that's really where uh, the battleground begins is up here. So anyway, uh, tie that off a little bit. That was a kind of a loose tie-off until next week. Hopefully it just won't bleed all week. Uh, but next week we're going to jump. We'll finish this section, and then we're going to start into uh, some of the strategies for warfare specifically and fighting. Next week maybe is, is uh, the week I'm going to talk about victory as well. So uh, let me pray and then uh, we'll break for a few minutes. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that we find here. Uh, thank you for your uh, guidance into that truth. Um, indeed, protect us from the evil one. Give us wisdom as we seek to set our minds and fix our eyes on Jesus. Even now, Father, as we turn our hearts and our attention to worship, we pray that we would firmly have our thoughts and our hearts and our affections sent on you, the God who made us, the God who has saved us, the God who calls us to himself this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.